This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Packley in Stockholm. Here in Episode 9, we take a planetary perspective on Antarctica and the critical role the southern polar region plays in global environmental change. We're joined by a world-leading Earth system scientist, Professor Will Steffen, who's worked for decades at the interface of science and policy, including as chairman of the Antarctic Science Advisory Committee in Australia. I had a chance to catch up with Will at the Stockholm Resilience Center, where he's a senior research fellow and a prominent proponent of concepts such as the Anthropocene, the Great Acceleration, and the Planetary Boundaries Framework. He's also a lead author of the Hothouse Earth article published in PNAS, which made a huge splash in the media internationally this past summer. We discussed that article later in the interview, as well as the place of Antarctica in the Australian popular imagination. But first, here's Professor Stefan explaining the centrality of Antarctica in the Earth system. It's by far the biggest player in terms of the cryosphere, in terms of ice on the planet. So if you look at the total land-based ice, which is predominantly on Greenland and Antarctica, with the bit uh, on the continental glaciers like Himalayas and Andes. And if you melted all of that, you would get on the order of 60 or 65 meters of sea level rise. But about 50 to 55 of those meters sit in Antarctica. So it's by far the biggest player. Also, it has sea ice around it. So it's the opposite of the North Pole where the sea ice sits on, on the water right over the North Pole in the center above Greenland and above Siberia and Canada. Antarctica sits on the South Pole and the sea ice is around the outside of that. But there's been some interesting contrast between the north and the south ice, the poles. Of course, in the northern hemisphere, we've seen a rapid retreat in geological time frame, rapid retreat of the summer sea ice in the Arctic to the point where we think we've crossed a, a tipping point there already. And that no matter what we do from here on out, we're going to lose that in summertime. The question is when. Antarctica was different because for a long time, sea ice was steady or even slightly increasing. Uh, and that was probably due to circulation differences down there. But now in the last couple of years, it seems to be retreating pretty fast. So we may have seen some switch in the circulation. Another contrast is Greenland, where ice is melting at an increasing rate. But there, the main process seems to be ice melt from the top. Some movement of outlet glaciers as well. But there, the tipping element is that as you melt ice from the top, the height gets lower and it moves the ice into a warmer climatic zone. And then you melt more ice and so you get uh, reinforcing feedback going. So there's thought there that the tipping element may may be as low as two to three degrees global warming may tip Greenland. Antarctica has always been thought to be much more stable. I think there's been a paradigm shift very recently. People tend to split out West Antarctica and East, the East being the much bigger zone. The West may be containing another four or five meters of sea level rise. Greenland's about six, I think. The West was thought to be and probably is much less stable. And that's because a lot of those ice sheets are grounded underwater. So they can be eroded from underneath with warmer seawater. They can disintegrate pretty fast because if they lift up off the basal rock, you get the sea level rise almost immediately. It's like taking an ice cube and putting it in water. Where Once you put it in open water, the open water comes up. But the big discovery in the last year or two, which was done by the Australian Antarctic Division and CSIRO scientists, was that there are some very big glacier ice systems in East Antarctica that are also grounded underwater, thought to have been stable, but now we're seeing quite significant temperature rises in the water around this. So now there's concern that there's larger parts of East Antarctica that are 
unstable. And the question there is one of these, the thing called the Totten Glacier, is a very big one. So if that's destabilized, that could accelerate ice loss from East Antarctica as well. So there's a lot of discussion about, about how stable really is East Antarctica. Still pretty certain that it's more stable than the northern ice, but there's a limit to how stable it is. And coupled with that is the Southern Ocean circulation. And that seems to be a really, really big player in the Earth's system. If you go back to glacial times and, and transitions of the Earth between glacial and interglacial states, Southern Ocean plays a really important role in terms of CO2 uptake uh, when we're going into an ice age and alternatively in CO2 outgassing from the ocean as we go into warm periods. So it's really interesting research there. Australia is a big player geographically, but probably a smaller player in terms of the resources we put down. We claim about 42% of Antarctica and have three stations down there. Being fully internationalized, that system, a lot of the really interesting science gets done on the Australian territory. For example, the famous Vostok ice core that really showed the glacial and glacial cycling, that was cored on Australian territory. And so was Epica, the big European ice core. That's also on Australian territory in East Antarctica. So it's a really fascinating place for science. East Antarctica is a rough place to get to. Not many tourists go down <laughs> because it's a long haul from Australia and New Zealand to get down there. Extremely rough waters and pretty inhospitable, but a fantastic place. In terms of the Australian debate about Antarctica or discussion, how do people generally talk about it? Of course, as a scientist, you're giving us uh, fantastic scientific perspectives. What's the general public debate? Is it about environmental concern, protecting mm. Antarctica from mineral exploitation? Yeah, it's actually an interesting part, I think, of Australian culture from the days that Douglas Mawson went down. And that was at the same year that Scott and Amundsen went for the South Pole. Uh, Douglas Mawson, who's a geologist from South Australia, went down to do a geological tour. So he was down there the same time the, the famous race occurred. And so Australian connection with Antarctica goes back a long, long, long way. But I think a second role that Australia played in, in the history of Antarctica was back in the 1980s. Back in the 1980s, there was growing talk about the mineral resources of Antarctica and the fact that maybe this could be a another great wealth-generating part of the world where countries could go in and mine stuff and so on. But the Australian Prime Minister at the time, Bob Hawke, got together with the French president, and the two of them were able to persuade the other powers around the world that the best way to go would be to preserve Antarctica and ban mining. So Australia played a pivotal role in that. And so I think Australians still have this nice feeling about our relationship with Antarctica, the fact of doing the right thing, even though we've had a string of conservative governments recently, and occasionally you hear the old let's go in for minerals proposal coming up again. There is not much support in that at all for Australia. I think most Australians, no matter what side of politics, value Antarctica as as a preserved place and also are proud of Australia's role. Also, when we had a, a conservative prime minister before Bob Hawke, Malcolm Fraser, he played a key role in getting whaling banned, particularly in the Southern Ocean waters around Antarctica. So we have a good history of looking after the Southern Ocean and Antarctica. Now the biggest stressor seems to be tourism, and virtually all the tourism goes to West Antarctica, the Antarctic Peninsula, because it's only about two days sail from the southern tip of South America. So the issue there is is how you're going to manage that, because there are ever-increasing numbers going down there, and that obviously is, acts as a stressor on the animals, on the penguins and seals and so on, but also just on the environment in general with more and more people going ashore, cruising around the waters and so on. So I think that's going to be an issue that's going to have to be looked at in the future is how do we manage tourism around Antarctica. On the other hand, it does build up support for preserving the place because when people come back really impressed and moved by being in Antarctica, they in their own countries will oppose proposals to exploit the continent. Is there any general <laughs> geopolitical concerns with other countries now showing more and more interest, uh, Asian countries, etc.? Yeah, there is, but I don't think it's a big concern. China and Korea 
are big players, but they're operating through the Antarctic Treaty System. I know Australia has agreements with both of those Asian countries, and they tend to come down through through Australia and sometimes use our airplane and airstrip to get down. In fact, I was coming back from Antarctica from a cruise coming back on a plane. I couldn't get on the Australian plane, and it was already uh, chartered out by Koreans. So I actually had to get a Canadian flight across to McMurdo and then get an American military plane up to New Zealand. <laughs> so I made my way back on an interesting, circuitous trip. But yeah, there's a lot more interest from countries that weren't part of the original Antarctic Treaty. But there is a provision for them to work through the treaty countries, and they tend to work through UK, USA, Australia. Hobart is one of the, the gateway cities, right? Yeah. So the two gateway cities down in our part of the world are Christchurch and Hobart. So the Americans operate through Christchurch down to their big station down to McMurdo. We operate out of Hobart down to, we have three stations in East Antarctica. Will Steffen was lead author among a group of 16 scholars behind an article that attracted a great deal of media coverage during the exceptionally hot Northern Hemisphere summer of 2018. Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene, published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, evoked hothouse Earth to describe a potential future state of the planet ravaged by runaway climate change. Here's Professor Steffen explaining the scientific reasoning behind the article. The entire point of that article was to reframe the challenge we face, the climate change challenge in particular, but putting that in a broader context, not just the climate change challenge, but biodiversity loss, all sorts of other changes to the Earth's system. The dominant paradigm, particularly in climate change, has been, and still is to a large extent, the fact that it's a linear system. So if you look at the IPCC projections, and you have scenarios of concentration pathways or emissions and so on. And the projected temperatures by 2100, for example, tend to scale with that. So the more you emit, the higher the temperature goes. And so the corollary to that is if you cap emissions, you're going to cap the temperature pretty much relative to the amount of emissions. Really what's behind that is, is the Earth as a linear deterministic system. And it may well be so at low levels of temperature rise because you're still operating within the same overall state, the Holocene or an interglacial. But we looked at it from a complex system point of view and took a broader look, looking back at the Earth, how it's behaved in the past. And it's been anything but a linear system. And you only have to look at the Vostok ice core or the Epica core to see that it's a bistable oscillator over the last two to three million years between glacial states and interglacial states. Or the technical people, the complex systems people, would call it a pullback attractor that spends most of the time in ice age and every hundred thousand years it comes up for a short warm period and it's pulled back down. All those dynamics are typical of a complex system that has well-defined, reasonably well-defined states and has transitions between the states. The key point is the dominant driver of those transitions isn't the outside force pushing it. It's the internal feedbacks become dominant once you cross the threshold. So we asked ourselves the question, is it conceivable that as we push the Earth system further out of the Holocene, we're going to see nonlinear dynamics typical of a complex system? So that was the frame in our mind. And so that's what drove us to explore what those feedbacks might be how they might operate in a cascade, link up together like a row of dominoes. You push the first couple over and then the whole row goes. So that was the origin of the paper was to say, let's take a fresh look right back to the conceptual framework we use to look at where the Earth system might be going. And so the more we talked through this, the more we gathered information on feedbacks, the more we looked at what little mathematical modeling would have been done. We said, yes, this is feasible. We can't say for sure this is the way it's going to pan out. But we certainly can say for sure you can't rule it out and that there's a considerable amount of evidence to say that this is a not only feasible, but a likely scenario, given what we know about feedbacks. So that was the origin of the paper. That was Professor Will Steffen, acclaimed Earth System scientist and science advisor to governments in Australia and elsewhere, who I interviewed at the Stockholm Resilience Centre on December 6, 2018. 
You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.